OK, so we'll start. Um, before we do, I'll ask if there are any questions from last time when we discussed uh, some emission spectroscopy techniques. And then we started to touch on some of these techniques of uh, nonlinear spectroscopy, which we'll go into more detail today. S naught is the saturation parameter on resonance. So, so we'll cover that today. But uh, this, it's the saturation parameter evaluated at the resonant frequency. And the saturation parameter, if you remember, looks like uh, it was 2p over r, where p is the pump rate and r is the relaxation rate. And the pump rate is frequency dependent. So the rate at which you're pumping atoms or molecules out of state I into state J depends on whether the radiation you're pumping with is tuned to that resonance. On resonance, it will pump efficiently. Off resonance, it will not. and so the cross-section, the absorption cross-section for those lower state atoms is frequency dependent. It has a Lorentzian frequency dependence. And that makes the saturation parameter frequency dependent. And so S0 is the on-resonance frequency, uh, on-resonance saturation parameter. So we'll, we will... Uh, We'll go over that in a few minutes as well. Any other questions? Okay, so um, we sort of previewed today's lecture at the end of last time. Uh, although what we'll do today is go through and fill in some of the gaps that we left out last time. So we looked at some pictures last time, but we didn't explain any of the mathematics. So we'll include the math this time. Really, I think most of the understanding comes from the pictures, though. So we will uh, repeat those and look at the pictures of what happens when you have um, high power being absorbed in a material causing saturation, what effect that has on the uh, spectral profile of the absorption lines. And we saw last time there was something called hole burning, where a uh, hole got burnt into the spectral profile. So we'll look at that, and we will look at how you can exploit that fact to make uh, sub-Doppler limited line width measurements. So there's a couple techniques to do that. Uh, Three of them are listed here. So we'll go through uh, basically what the experiments look like to use these different techniques, and then describe some of the hazards or challenges you face in using these techniques. It's primarily these crossover effects, which we'll describe. And then if there's time, there's a couple other techniques uh, that make use of multi-photon absorption that we'll describe that uh, have similar, similar benefits, but uh, slightly different mechanisms. OK, so recall that a absorption profile that might look like a Lorentzian line shape in the absence of any saturation 
would get broadened when we have high power illuminating our absorber. Right, that was saturation broadening. Someone remind me of the mechanism that causes that broadening? Got a sample. Our laser. We tune its frequency. We measure the power going through and maybe the input power. And we measure the uh, amount of absorption as we tune the laser frequency and we plot some absorption profile. When we turn up the laser power, we get a different absorption profile. What was the mechanism responsible for that? Okay, so population inversion, or at least a decrease in the population difference. So initially, we start with a sample that's in thermodynamic equilibrium, so we expect the majority of the population to be in the ground state. We illuminate it with our laser tuned to resonance, and that pumps atoms or molecules up into the excited state. And if we pump it hard enough, we can uh, eventually reach a point where the population of the upper and lower state are in equilibrium. Once we reach that, what happens to our absorption? It equals our gain, so the net absorption equals zero. Okay, so as we approach that condition, we expect the absorption to decrease. Um, okay, so the more power that we're absorbing, the fewer atoms or molecules we have left to absorb. And as a result, the amount of absorption that we see decreases when we have high absorption. So in this line profile, where do we have high absorption? So at omega naught, the resonant frequency. So in the line kernel, we have high absorption. In the wings, we have low absorption. So we expect the kernel to get saturated, the wings to remain essentially unsaturated. And that drives down the kernel relative to the wings. The amount that gets driven down um, is related to this saturation parameter S. And it's frequency dependent. Gets decreased the most at resonance and the least off resonance. Okay. So we will define S naught saturation parameter on resonance. Okay, and by compressing the peak, that reduces the half max value. And so we have to go further out on our line wings to reach the half max value that increases our full width half max. And so the saturated absorption line width is greater than the unsaturated absorption line width. So this, this zero here 
represents uh, unsaturated line width. And it's increased by a factor of square root of 1 plus uh, the saturation parameter on resonance. So we derived that when we talked about uh, line broadening. OK, so that's the case. Um, that's the case when we treat all frequencies as being illuminated by the, the incident radiation. And certainly, if we start with a natural, uh, the natural lifetime of an excited state, so that we just have the natural line width, um, we would see it saturated in such a way. So we mentioned last time that there's a distinction, though, when your line profile is broadened inhomogeneously. So different atoms in your sample have line profiles. Why might you have that? What I, uh, yeah, I will. Uh, what I've drawn here is the Lorentzian line shape that represents the natural alignment of some absorbing material. And in certain situations, different parts of the material will absorb at different frequencies. And so the net absorption you see when you transmit light through the material is the sum of all the different absorption profiles. We get this broadened line profile. That's called an inhomogeneously broadened profile. Why would different atoms absorb at different frequencies? So the Doppler effect. They're moving at different velocities. So the radiation they see has different Doppler shifts to it. And they will absorb when the Doppler shifted radiation is on resonance with the, the atomic transition. So the distribution of uh, these absorption profiles just follows the Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution that we would get for the different velocity components. And their sum is this uh, Gaussian-shaped absorption line. So if we now imagine we have uh, radiation at some frequency, let's say we have some frequency that we uh, illuminate our sample with, it's off resonance, we compare it to our uh, Lorentzian and homogeneous line shape. So that's a homogeneous line shape. That's a homogeneous line shape. And this is a inhomogeneous. the broadened line shape. If we have a particular frequency that's resonant, or that's, that's off resonant, and we illuminate it, we'd expect some amount of saturation of the homogeneous line shape. Uh, more saturation if we're on resonance. So over here, if we're on the side of this absorption line, some of the atoms that see that particular frequency shifted onto resonance due to their Doppler shift, those are strongly saturated. So their absorption profile gets saturated the same way this one did. 
But the atoms that have other velocities, such that this particular frequency is far off resonance, those don't absorb that frequency, and so they don't see any saturation effects. So what we get is a uh, decrease in the absorption at the frequency we're illuminating at. And so the total absorption profile would no longer be this uh, Voigt distribution, but would have a hole burned into it. And that hole represents the decrease in absorption due to this saturation. So this line shape under here is the natural line shape, or at least it's the homogeneous line shape. So it's either the natural line shape or the pressure broadened uh, line shape, which is a form of homogeneous broadening. And that gets superimposed, uh, subtracted from our inhomogeneous profile. Okay, so here is a picture of that. Um, here we have broadband illumination. And so every, uh, every absorption profile underneath this uh, Doppler broadened curve gets saturated equally. And so the entire curve gets saturated this, by the same amount. And in the case of monochromatic radiation, where our uh, laser has a line width smaller than the line width of this Doppler broadened profile, only the atoms for which that laser is resonant will get saturated, and that will burn the hole. So that hole is called a Bennett hole. And even though we can plot what this absorption profile looks like, if we try to measure it using our sort of standard canonical experiment where we sweep the laser frequency, we measure the transmitted and incident power, look at their difference, and as we sweep the laser frequency, plot out the absorption, we would not see this shape. Can someone remind me why? Yeah, we can only observe the frequency that we're illuminating at. And that's the frequency that's saturated. And even though the other frequencies aren't saturated, when we shift our laser to those other frequencies so that we can observe the absorption there, in the process of doing that, we saturate those other frequencies. And so here's a movie that shows that. As we're sweeping the laser frequency, that's the red bar on the horizontal axis. You can see the uh, Bennett hole follows our laser frequency, and so we're always measuring the amount of absorption at the center of the Bennett hole. And that gives us this saturated line profile. Okay, so we can't directly observe the Bennett hole using the, the same laser to read out the absorption as we are to saturate it. But we can use two different lasers. We can use one laser to saturate the, uh, the material and another to read out the absorption. So while one laser, one high power laser, is fixed at a given frequency, 
causing saturation in a Bennett hole. We can take a lower power laser and scan it across this frequency range and measure the absorption profile there. As long as that second laser, the probe, isn't producing saturation, it will follow this uh, total absorption profile and measure that Bennett hole. In and of itself, that's interesting uh, as a curiosity, but may not have very much practical uh, use. However, wait for that animation to finish before I can advance the slide. However, in a pump probe measurement, if we uh, are creative about how we arrange those pump and probe beams, we can use them to tell us some interesting things. Okay, so let's go through the math first, uh, or at least outline the math that describes this uh, absorption profile with the bent hole. So we're plotting the absorption coefficient. And the absorption coefficient is just a uh, number density of atoms times a cross-section. So number density is uh, number of atoms per unit volume. A cross-section is the effective area of each atom. So this is some number of absorbers per unit length. We multiply that by a length, and we get some number of absorbers, um, which is some fractional power of absorption. OK, so um, this material cross-section describes how big the uh, atoms appear to be, as seen by the, the laser light. Uh, how big of an atom, or how big of a transverse profile uh, you would need to have for an opaque object uh, to absorb the same fraction of, of incident intensity as the atom or molecule absorbs. So the atom or molecule's absorption is a function of frequency. We expect its cross-section to be a function of frequency. And because the frequency at which it uh, absorbs depends on its, the Doppler shift, then we're also going to write this as a function of the um, longitudinal velocity of the atoms. So the z direction is the direction of laser beam propagation. And the component of the atom's velocity in that direction we'll call v sub z. So really, this cross-section is just a function of frequency. Our frequency is Doppler shifted, so there's two things that contribute to that. The initial frequency and the velocity component causing the Doppler shift. So remember the Doppler shifted frequency, omega v is equal to omega um, plus k dot v. Actually, that's minus. So if the laser is propagating in the direction of the velocity, we expect the frequency to be downshifted the minus sign. Okay, so uh, the cross-section is velocity dependent. The p 
population inversion, or the population uh, difference between the upper state and the, the lower state, which in general will not be an inversion, um, that also is going to be velocity dependent. Atoms that are moving at a frequency are moving with a velocity such that the incident radiation at frequency omega is shifted onto resonance. Those ones will be saturated. So each of these line profiles represents a line profile for atoms with a different value of V sub Z. And since absorption is more prominent for one of those than for the others, um, the relative population of the ground state is dependent on the velocity of the uh, atoms in the ground state. Okay, so we're going to consider the population that has a velocity of V sub Z. Look at what its cross-section is. Multiplying those gives us the absorption for those atoms. And then we'll integrate over all the possible velocities. And that will give us the total absorption. Okay, so that's what I've written up here. And now I've replaced this omega, or I've put in this omega prime. Omega prime is the frequency of my pump. So my pump beam is the one that's responsible for saturating. That's at a fixed frequency, and I'm saying I'm going to tune my probe frequency. So omega prime is the frequency of the pump. Um, it gets shifted, again, Doppler shifted, due to the velocity that the atoms have. And so I can write the, uh, should be a comma. I can write an expression for that population difference as uh, the total population uh, difference at, of atoms that have a velocity v sub z minus however many of those have been pumped into the upper state. That's the saturation. So this is the unsaturated uh, population of the ground state. So that times 1 is the unsaturated population. This times the saturation parameter times this Lorentzian line width is the amount that that's decreased due to saturation. And now, this uh, population distribution as a function of velocity should be a Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution. Right, so we can write a Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution that has uh, an energy that has uh, some amplitude and then an energy of 1 half mv squared and we normalize that to the thermal energy. And remember, we relate the thermal energy to the kinetic energy of an atom or molecule with the most probable velocity, v sub p. Okay, so in doing that, the 1 half m's cancel out. And we get this Gaussian term. And when we normalize that, 
So when we consider all possible velocities, when we add up the, uh, the population of all possible velocities, we should get delta n naught, the unsaturated, uh, the unsaturated population density. So integrating over all possible v sub z's, when you integrate a Gaussian over all space, uh, you get square root of pi times the argument uh, the factor in front of the variable you're, uh, you're integrating over squared. And so that forms the normalization term in the denominator. Okay, so starting with our original expression that we want to integrate for the uh, line width, or the line profile, we've described what this uh, population density looks like. It has um, one component, which is a distribution of atoms with different energies, with different uh, velocities, producing different kinetic energies. And then it has a component due to saturation. And so finally, what we need to to do is write out what this uh, cross-section looks like. And so that cross-section is the natural line width of the, of the atom. So it's a Lorentzian profile. So remember, gamma is the damping, which equals the full width half max of the profile. For the frequency, we're going to use the Doppler shifted frequency, omega minus k, k dot v. And on resonance, um, this term goes to zero, with gamma over two squared over gamma over two squared. So this Lorentzian term equals one on resonance, which makes this factor sigma naught the absorption or the uh, cross section on resonance. Okay, so we plug this expression in for sigma. We pro- plug this expression in for the distribution of uh, velocities. And then we take this saturated uh, distribution of saturated uh, population density and plug it in. And we can then do the integral. And I can quote you the results. We could spend the rest of the lecture uh, attempting to do that integral, or we can look at the results and move on, which is what we'll do. We have the absorption profile. looks like the unsaturated absorption profile. So that's this first term. Minus some expression which depends on the amount of saturation. Right, so if the saturation is 0, S0 is 0, this second term goes away. And we just have the unsaturated profile. In the presence of saturation, this term reduces the amount of absorption. Um, let's see, going back, that will happen when both of these terms are contributing to the integral, or when this term right here, the population version, is contributing, and when this term is contributing, meaning um, our pump needs to essentially be within one line width of resonance for this term to contribute. 
And our probe needs to be within one line width of resonance in order to measure that. So as a result, the pump and the probe need to be within one line width of, of each other. And the line width is the total line width, meaning the line width of the probe, which is the unsaturated line width, plus the line width of the pump, which is saturated. And so it gets increased by this factor of square root of, of 1 plus s naught. And so this capital gamma we represent as the sum of the line widths of the pump and the probe. So if they're within the line width of each other, um, we would expect that the probe will measure the saturation from the pump from the pump. And that's when this term will become significant, and that's when we'll see the saturation effects. Okay, so um, the reason you might want to, to explore this Bennett hole, or use this Bennett hole, is that by double passing your sample, you can arrange for um, your beam to be both the pump and the probe. And because you're double passing, an atom that's moving in one direction will see uh, one beam upshifted in frequency and one beam downshifted in frequency. Or another way of saying that is as we scan the laser frequency, the atoms that we excite depending on which direction the laser beam is going, um, are on equal distances away from the line center. So if we're exciting atoms that uh, are Doppler shifted over to this frequency, that have the resonance Doppler shifted over to this frequency in one direction, we're simultaneously exciting atoms that are, have their resonant frequency Doppler shifted in the other direction when the beam retroreflects and comes back. And so in essence, one direction is the pump, one direction is the probe. And we're measuring the sum of the signal seen by these two different frequencies. And only when those two frequencies pass through the center are the pump and probe measuring the same atoms. The pump and probe are measuring the same atoms. What does that say about the power those atoms are absorbing compared to the power being absorbed? What's that, Melissa? It's twice as much. There's twice as much power being absorbed for atoms with zero velocity in the longitudinal direction uh, because atoms with some amount of uh, velocity in the longitudinal direction will absorb some power and atoms at the opposite velocity will absorb the power in the other direction. But when the velocity is zero, it's the same atoms absorbing in both directions. We get twice as much power. That means we get more saturation and we get this dip. Uh, this is called the Lamb dip. In this particular geometry, it's basically the same mechanism as the Bennett hole. Uh, and here we're reading it out with the same beam that we're saturating it with. They're just traveling in opposite directions. 
And so this lambda has a line shape that's basically the saturated um, homogeneous line shape. And that can be small compared to the inhomogeneous line shape if you have a Doppler broadened material. Okay, so the mathematics for that is very similar to that we just showed for the pump probe with the Bennett hole. Um, the only difference now is that uh, we have the same distribution of population with different velocities. And then for our absorption profile, uh, we have absorption in two directions. So, so we'll write the absorption twice. And once we're going to see a Doppler shift in one direction, and in the other direction we see the opposite Doppler shift. And so these two terms will be the same when Vz equals 0. Otherwise, they represent uh, line profiles that are separated in frequency, and only one of them will be significant at a time. And so when we go through the integral, we get a similar expression that looks like the uh, unsaturated absorption minus some saturation parameter. And that uh, saturation parameter sees a uh, effective line width, or the, the Bennett hole that we see has an effective line width that's just the saturated line width of the natural transition. OK, so let's look at some examples of this. Here we have uh, an energy level diagram for a system that has two very closely spaced energy levels. So let's say you wanted to measure the spectrum of that system, but that these two energy levels were within a line width of each other, at least within the Doppler broaden line width. So let's say this is a gas. Um, using normal techniques, you couldn't do it. Your precision of your measurement, your resolution is not high enough. Uh, it would be limited by the line width. If you do it with this double pass technique, what you'd see is uh, essentially the sum of these two uh, Doppler broaden line widths. And in the double pass technique, you'd have this Bennett hole on top of each one. And because those Bennett holes are narrow, uh, you could see them, resolve them in the sum uh, absorption profile that you measure. And so if you take a difference uh, between the, uh, the unsaturated line width and the saturated profile, you'd see those two uh, natural line widths for these two transitions from C to A and C to B. So that's an example of sub-Doppler limited measurements using this Bennett hole. OK, so how do you take the difference between what the absorption would have been without double passing and with double passing? And there's two ways to do that. The first is using a lock-in amplifier. We talked a little bit about a lock-in amplifier before. Your next homework will be to basically derive the uh, performance or the behavior of a lock-in amplifier. So, 
imagine the experiment like this. You still have a single laser coming in, and it's double passing your material. This is a little different than the last diagram I showed. It's not just uh, retroreflecting. Um, that's just so that we can, we can do a little bit more with this experiment. And we'll put in a chopper here. A chopper is like a mechanical switch that turns the light on and off very rapidly. And in the process of doing that, what we've done is essentially turned on and off the Bennett hole. Right? When the chopper blocks this beam, then when we measure this probe coming through, as we scan the laser frequency, we'll measure whatever the Doppler broaden line width would be. There'd be no saturation effects from the Bennett hole, or whatever saturation effects we have, they'd be uniform over the entire profile. But then when the chopper lets through the light, this pump will saturate our material, and that saturation will reduce the, uh, the absorption, more so for atoms that have zero, trans zero longitudinal velocity. And so those are the ones that aren't Doppler shifted, and those will produce these Bennett holes for all the different transitions that may sit underneath this smeared outline. Okay, so um, the trick then is to measure our signal coming into our detector and how, how it changes at the frequency that the pump is being chopped at. What types of frequencies would we want for that pump, for that chopper? Think back to the homework you just turned in. High frequencies or low frequencies? High. Why high? Yeah, uh, there's more noise at low frequencies. In practice, these choppers are usually um, spinning disks, and they have pie-shaped slots cut in them. So it's a little bit like a, a fan. And you're sending the light through a fan. Um, but they're typically mechanical. And because they're mechanical, that limits the speed to sort of tens of kilohertz. So you probably aren't going to modulate uh, one of these mechanical choppers at 10 megahertz or something to get to the shot noise level. Um, nevertheless, at higher frequencies, you tend to have less noise. You can put in electro-optic modulators here to go faster. It's just it's more expensive, and um, typically these mechanical choppers provide good enough performance that they're, they're commonly used. Okay, so this is uh, modulating the pump at a particular frequency. If the pump and probe interact, you should see some effect on the probe. Right? So at frequencies where the pump and probe are interacting, because they're being absorbed by the same atoms, those with zero velocity components, you should see some change in the probe intensity. At frequencies where the pump and probe are being absorbed by different atoms, they don't interact. And your detector could care less about how you're chopping the pump. Okay, so if your chopper is turning the pump on and off, uh, if you could imagine taking a full absorption profile with 
the chopper on and then off, what would the profile look like and how would it change as the chopper turns the pump beam on and off? Pump's turned off, and it's blocked. You just have your laser going through your sample to your detector. What would you see for the uh, absorption profile? The What's that? The well, uh, this is our probe. So it's strong enough to saturate uh, because it's also our pump. So we'll assume, for example, that they have the same intensity. It's strong enough to saturate, um, and then we're tuning it through all frequencies of interest. Okay, now we turn off the chopper and we repeat the measurement. What would we see? When I say turn off, I mean uh, if you allow this pump to pass, then what do you see? You see the dips. So this is drawn one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There are seven resonances under this uh, smeared out curve. So then you'd see this. Okay, and the difference, so let's see, we have uh, no pump, pump, and when we look at the signal with no pump minus the signal with the pump, we would just see that the spectrum of the however many lines are sitting underneath that, that blurred, blurred out Doppler broadened spectrum. OK, so that's what would happen if we could take a full spectrum in the time that the chopper was on or off. Okay, so given the fact that we're chopping this fast, tens of kilohertz, uh, do you think it's reasonable to take a full spectrum in that time? So you're doing, you're measuring two points with the pump on and off, and then you're tuning the laser frequency and essentially measuring two more points, right? And so uh, you're tuning the laser frequency slow compared to the chop frequency, and as you go across, your lock-in uh, is essentially measuring how the signal changes with the probe on or with the pump on and pump off. Okay, so yeah, let's let's describe that a little bit. So if you have some signal, some voltage signal, it looks like this. That might be the signal from your photodetector over here measuring the probe beam and it might have uh, these steps due to the chopper being turned on and off. The Fourier transform of that signal, 
So this is a signal as a function of time. It's going to look like what? Yeah, so the dominant components are going to be at 1 over the period. So I'll write this as a frequency f. And then there's going to be the, the odd order terms. First square wave. And the bigger the square wave, the bigger all of these terms. And so if you can measure, for example, the magnitude of one of those terms, that will tell you about the magnitude of this square wave. And the magnitude of that square wave is just proportional to the difference between the pump with the pump and without the pump. Okay, so if you can measure the magnitude of one of these terms in the Fourier transform of your uh, detector signal as you scan your laser frequency, and you plot that, you will plot out this. That's what the lock-in does. So how does it extract a particular frequency? Uh, first of all, it needs to know what frequency it's trying to extract. And so you'll have a reference voltage. It can come in many forms. Um, it's some signal that has the same frequency that you're trying to detect. Um, and one way you could get that, you could take a photocell. You could take a little LED right here. And on the other side, you could put a photodetector. And it's going to be chopped by the same chopper at the same rate. Right, so the signal coming from that photodetector uh, wouldn't be sinusoidal. It would also be a square wave at the same period. And then you send that reference and the signal into a lock-in. And what the lock-in does is it multiplies them. And then it averages them. So an average means we average for some length of time and then divide, it by, divide by that length of time. OK, so when we multiply these, um, let me write, yeah, let me write v ref of t. Let me write the signal as superposition of a whole bunch of different Fourier frequency components. After all, that's what it is. 
frequency. Uh, the amplitude of the Fourier transform is V sub f. And I'll write those as, uh, let's say, sine components. So I'll do that without. Well, let's say I just choose my uh, t equals 0 so that I can write them as signs and neglect the cosine terms. Um, if our reference signal has one dominant frequency in it, then I will write that as just uh, some magnitude at a particular frequency. When I multiply those two together, what I'm going to get is uh, over frequency. So when I multiply them together, I get the product of two signs. Right, this is Fourier's trick. This is what we're going through here is Fourier's trick. If those signs are different, then when I integrate over a full period, um, I'll get 0. If they're the same frequency, then their product is going to be look like sine squared, some argument. It's always positive. It integrates to have some average value. Um, I think I will leave it at that and allow you to uh, use that as a starting point for your homework. If you use an expansion for sine A times sine B, or you write these as complex exponentials, you can then expand this and get terms that look like uh, this frequency plus that frequency and this frequency minus that frequency. The sum frequencies are fast oscillations that average out when you integrate over some time. The difference frequencies will be significant uh, when the reference frequency is the same as this frequency. When that's the case, uh, you get this value contributing to the integral. And that occurs only for when this frequency equals that of the reference. So you get a signal out of the lock-in that has uh, a magnitude proportional to your input signal 
frequency component at the reference frequency. So hopefully that's enough to uh, provide the conceptual understanding then of what the lock-in does. Okay, so uh, that's one way to make a differential measurement, is essentially measure the same thing at two different times, once with the pump on, once with the pump off. And by measuring it at uh, successive time intervals that are very close together, you essentially ensure that nothing in the system has changed over that time. Um, the downside of this is that, uh, A, you're assuming nothing's changed. That may not be the case, particularly if you have an ultra-fast process that you're looking at, pulse lasers, um, where the laser is not pulsing uh, during both the times when the chopper's on and off. And also, lock-in amplifiers are expensive. Spend, you can spend $100,000 on a good lock-in amplifier. You can also build one from diodes. So just depending on the uh, quality level you want, these can be expensive devices. So there's other ways to do differential measurements. You can, for example, um, have your pump beam and take your probe and split it into two paths. Maybe one that uh, travels through your sample but never overlaps with your pump. That would measure the unsaturated absorption. One that goes through the pump beam overlaps and that would measure the saturated absorption. And by taking the difference of those, you get the same effect as taking the difference of these two, two curves. Okay, so that's perhaps a little experimentally easier to do if you don't have a lock-in amplifier. Uh, what would some of the disadvantages of this geometry be? Or what assumptions are you making in saying that the difference between the probe of the saturated region and the probe of the unsaturated region tells you about the saturation of the uh, material? Okay, so we're assuming that this truly is unsaturated and this one is saturated. That's true. Um, what else about maybe the distribution of material inside of this cell? Yeah, we're assuming that it's homogeneous and that there's no uh, spatial dependence on any of the parameters. So that may not be the case. Um, you may have some reaction taking place and you're trying to observe the products of the reactants. Um, those may take place on a, on a uh, catalyst, and so you may have a higher concentration of reactants or products near that catalyst, and maybe uh, they diffuse out, aren't as concentrated when you're further away. So in the measurement with the lock-in, we're assuming there's some temporal uh, stability to our system or uniformity, and in this differential measurement, we're assuming some spatial uniformity. For different types of experiments, uh, one of those may be a better choice than, than another. A lot of experiments, either one will work equally well. Okay, so uh, a couple related techniques that involve uh, pump probe spectroscopy. We mentioned one before when we talked about 
forms of emission spectroscopy. It's called intermodulated fluorescence. Um, so although we already talked about it, we have a little different picture of what's going on now that we can use to explain it. Let me remind you of what this uh, technique involves. Take our laser, that we're sweeping in frequency, and we'll split it. And double pass the cell. Right, so the double pass is a common, common element of these Doppler-free techniques. And we will modulate. both arms. Okay. So you could do that by putting a chopper in both arms. And we're modulating them at different frequencies. So really, uh, the technique we just saw is really similar to this, only one of these frequencies is zero. Those could be choppers. They could be uh, sinusoidal amplitude modulators. It's not really that important. And now, instead of looking at the absorption, we look at the fluorescence. Look at the light that gives it is given off. Put a lens here and a detector. What type of detector might we choose for something like that? Photomultiplier tube. Since we have low intensity in the fluorescence. Okay, and so um, we showed a couple lectures ago that um, atoms that absorb both paths of the light, meaning atoms that are at rest in the longitudinal direction, those will, uh, since they absorb both components, they will see some saturation that has a frequency component at omega-1 and omega-2. In fact, at the cross products of omega-1 and omega-2. So the saturation uh, affects the amount of uh, population in the upper state that can fluoresce. And so the fluorescence will have some uh, frequency component at omega-1 plus omega-2 and omega-1 minus omega-2. Okay, so in pictures and in math, we can describe that here. Um, so here's our net absorption profile made up of a whole bunch of Lorentzian line profiles that are smeared out due to uh, Doppler broadening. And because we're double passing the same laser, um, we're going to excite atoms that have a downshifted Doppler frequency and atoms with an upshifted Doppler frequency at the same time, just uh, using different directions of the laser beam. And as we tune the laser frequency through resonance, when we're on resonance, we will excite uh, the same atoms with both volt beams. And so if we look at the fluorescence that's given off uh, by light or by atoms absorbing light from the arm that's modulated at frequency omega-1, that fluorescence should be modulated at omega-1. Likewise, uh, the atoms that are absorbing light from arm 2 that's modulated at omega-2 will have fluorescence at omega-2. And when the same atoms are being absorbed, we get fluorescence at omega-1 and omega-2. Okay, so that fluorescence is proportional to the amount of absorption. So the cross-section times the number density is the absorption coefficient. Delta Z is the distance through the material. So this is the total amount of absorption. 
And if we're absorbing from beam 1 and beam 2, then uh, we have to add up, actually let's go up here, we have to add up the intensity from beam 1 and beam 2 to determine the total fluorescence intensity. And now um, we'll write this uh, population density as the saturated population density, meaning there's an unsaturated component and there's some reduction due to the amount of intensity that's absorbed. That's just proportional to the total intensity. So we now have this I1 plus I2 that comes in the saturation, uh, the saturation of the population. And we have the I1 plus I2 that is the power available to be absorbed. And the product of those two is I1 plus I2 squared. That squaring has a cross term. That cross term will be have frequency components at omega 1 plus or minus omega 2. Right, so we would take a lock-in amplifier, we would tune it, we would use a reference at omega 1 plus or minus omega 2, and we would look for signals at that frequency. And here's what we'd see. Here's an example. Um, so here's an experiment set up that uh, is similar to what we see here. Here we've got a chopper. Same chopper is chopping both beams. Um, oftentimes these choppers will have disks, usually something like uh, five inch diameter disks or so. And they'll have a certain number of holes around the perimeter. And then a different number of holes in the center. So for every revolution, we might get uh, three, three cycles of modulation if we're sending the light through the center ring, and we might get like 10 cycles of oscillation if we're sending it through the outer ring. So with the single chopper, you can get uh, two different frequencies introduced on the beams if you send each beam through a different part of the chopper. And of course, those frequencies are, are synchronized to each other, which is nice. So um, your mechanical, the driver for this chopper, uh, could have some uh, circuitry which produces a signal at F1 plus F2 or F1 minus F2 and feeds into the lock-in. And here's our photomultiplier tube we're detecting in the lock-in F1 plus F2. Um, if we don't do that, if we just detect the total power um, out of the photomultiplier tube, that's, does anyone remember what that type of measurement's called? You send in a, a beam that's going to be absorbed, you tune its frequency and you measure the amount of of uh, fluorescence that comes off. What's that? It's, yeah, it's emission spectroscopy, LIF, laser-induced fluorescence. So if we just measure the total power on this photomultiplier tube, we get, might get a curve that looks something like this. Um, that's just the laser-induced fluorescence. And you can kind of see there's uh, little ripples on there that might be something. Um, can't really tell. Can't resolve them. but. Um, Measuring at the intermodulation frequency, we're detecting only uh, the Doppler free line widths, and we see those uh, occurring at the frequencies where those ripples are. And we can clearly resolve a lot of fine structure sitting underneath this broadened line. Okay, so one of the 
disadvantages of using any of these two photon techniques is you can get some phantom structure in your absorption spectrum due to what we call crossover signals. And here we see an example of this. Let's say we've got uh, two absorption lines that are closely spaced. And if we measure uh, the total absorption profile, we would expect to see something like this purple line where there is this lamb dip at the center of each of those. But we'll also see oftentimes a dip or a peak at the point right in between those two. And that doesn't actually correspond to a, uh, an absorption line. Okay, so rather, the reason for that can be understood by looking at this uh, energy level diagram. And let's say we're pumping from our ground state up to one of these, up to this, uh, this region of the energy level diagram. And so as we scan the laser frequency, we expect um, our absorption to uh, pass through this energy level EK and then continue on to this energy level EL and that represents these two peaks. At a frequency such that we're right in between those two energy levels, think about what happens uh, to a beam going in just one direction. Forget about the other beam. In just one direction, um, an atom moving relative to that beam sees it Doppler shifted. Okay, now, if it's Doppler shifted up for the light in one direction, it's going to be Doppler shifted down for the light in the other. Okay, and we said there are one reason why that atom might be resonant for both beams is because the amount of Doppler shift up and the amount of Doppler shift down is zero because it has no, no longitudinal velocity. But another reason is the laser can be tuned directly between two energy levels. And so when it gets Doppler shifted up, it's resonant for absorption onto one level. And when it gets Doppler shifted down, it's resonant for an absorption to a different level. And if that's the case, you would get uh, absorption for uh, frequencies that are right between these two levels. And that would be the same type of thing that you'd see for uh, absorption when you're on resonance. You'd get another dip, just like the, uh, the lamb dip at the line center. Okay, so that's, an, that's what we call a crossover signal. And it can occur when the atoms are being uh, pumped to an energy that's halfway between two upper states, or halfway between two lower states. If we're halfway between two lower states, then instead of getting absorption, uh, we get a decrease in the absorption, we get a peak. So you can get these, uh, these phantom dips or peaks in your spectrum. Okay, so they can be recognized if you're aware to look for them. They're always going to be directly between two absorption lines. So sometimes there's some initial processing necessary to clean up the spectrum. Okay, there's uh, two other techniques that uh, that use saturation 
in a slightly different way. Um, I think we'll have probably time to get to one, maybe both of these. The first is by taking your material and putting it inside of a laser cavity. So here's the laser cavity. There's our laser material. If we put our absorbing cell inside the cavity, we've seen this once already. Um, if the cavity is just near threshold, then at frequencies where this absorption is high, it can drive the cavity below threshold and turn it off. And so as we scan the frequency of this laser, uh, there will be frequencies at which it won't laze. Those correspond to the peaks in the absorption cell. Um, the idea here is similar, but not as drastic. Um, we know that in a cav linear cavity where light's going in both directions, we expect to see these two photon interactions, the saturation effect, this Bennett hole in the absorption line. And what that means is at the very peak of this absorption line profile, the absorption dips. So there's less absorption on line center than there is slightly off center. So in a region where there's less absorption, the output of the laser is what? Higher or lower? Higher. So as you tune the laser frequency, um, you might see for the output power some peak that corresponds to the uh, frequency range over which this absorption cell is, is saturated. So the width of this peak is the width of the Bennett hole that's reducing the absorption in the laser. So it's the saturated homogeneous line width. And so one common way to measure this would be to take your laser mirrors and dither them. So shake them back and forth. And in doing so, what happens to the uh, resonant frequency of that laser cavity. It's, uh, you can think of it as being Doppler broadened, or you can think of the instantaneous frequency as shifting back and forth. And when you average that over some length of time, it means the frequency would be broadened. Um, but if you think about it as uh, the laser frequency is dithering back and forth, um, as it does, as it passes through this resonance, the output power Every time it passes through that resonance, the output power will have a peak. And so you can measure on a lock-in amplifier the change in the laser output power at the frequency at which you're dithering. And so um, here is what that uh, output power looks like as a function of frequency. When you measure its rate of change, that's like measuring the slope so here's the slope, and that's what you'd expect to see out of your locking amplifier. So this experimental diagram is taken from uh, Dem Schroeder, and it actually shows a couple things that aren't really necessary. You have this detector, this filter for third frequency and then a lock-in. So it's going to lock into this frequency here. That's not really necessary. The lock-in will measure whatever frequency you give it from the frequency generator. So if your frequency generator is 
producing a signal at 3F and feeding that into the lock-in. Uh, the lock-in will only detect frequencies coming from your detector at 3F. So this is a bit redundant. Okay, and then one last technique called polarization spectroscopy. There's, you start to see a pattern. Anytime you have counterpropagating beams, you can have two-photon interaction that occurs preferentially for atoms that have zero longitudinal velocity. There's lots of different techniques you can use to read that out. So we've seen a couple of them now. Uh, this is the last one that I'll mention then. The idea is that your counterpropagating beams are circularly polarized in opposite directions. And because they will impart a different uh, sign for the angular momentum into the sample, if we think about the possible angular momentum states of our lower level and assume they're all equally populated, if we have absorption of a circularly polarized beam that preferentially um, causes a change in angular momentum of uh, one particular sign, then we're going to saturate these states over here. Here I'm showing an increase in the angular momentum due to the absorption of a photon. So we're going to saturate these low angular momentum states and leave these higher angular momentum states relatively unaffected. And so then after we've done that, the material becomes birefringent. And in the process uh, of doing this, we also send a sample through in the other direction and measure its polarization change. That's proportional to the birefringence. And once again, um, because we have counterpropagating beams, the effect will be noticeable for atoms that absorb and interact with both, uh, with both uh, directions of propagation, so those with zero transverse velocity. Okay, so um, we covered many different techniques. They all have the same basic principle of interaction. Um, and we call them all now pump probe methods, where we have two beams, one that's interacting with our sample and another one that's measuring what's going on with the sample. Um, so that's common in lots of different physics measurements, these pump probe methods. Um, and here the pump is going to saturate atoms with a particular velocity, the probe will read that out. And because it only affects, the pump will only affect atoms with a particular velocity, uh, it avoids the uh, broadening present in Doppler broaden lines. So lots of different techniques can take advantage of this. Uh, some that use saturation. Those can be detected either using chopping, where you're comparing the saturated and unsaturated states at different times or differential measurements, where you're considering different spatial parts of your sample that are saturated or not. We can chop both beams and look at the fluorescence that comes out. And by measuring at the uh, sum or difference frequency of our chopping, we can detect only the atoms that are absorbing both. That's called intermodulated fluorescence. Uh, one advantage of this, really any fluorescence measurement, I mentioned this before, is that uh, you can, because you're imaging the light that's coming out, you can determine where it comes from. You're not just integrating over some cord 
through your sample. So that might be a useful technique when you need to uh, localize the source of, of uh, the absorption. And we saw intercavity saturation where you put the system inside of a laser cavity. One of the advantages there is you can get very high power coming out of the laser, much easier to measure, um, certainly than like a, a fluorescence measurement. Uh, we also saw this polarization spectroscopy uh, technique, um, although we didn't go into much detail about it, but they all have the counterpropagating beams. So really, what you should take out of this is when you see counterpropagating beams, think Doppler-free. When you uh, see an energy level diagram with closely spaced energy levels that you want to resolve, think two-photon interaction. Any questions? Okay, uh, homework's due, so if you hadn't turned it in yet, uh, make sure to get it in now.